I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Okay, Wiley. Can you explain to us where we are? At the creek. Will you describe it for us? I don't know its name. <laughs> well, what do you guys see? How about, let's start there. We see lots of plants, but I, I see know. a house. Oh, I see a house too. <laughs> also, I see a creek. Yeah. Also, I see some rocks. What do you like to do with rocks? Throw them in the river. Like this! So we're sitting in a little stream right by a house a couple blocks away. And it's been like our little escape. Right now, we're here in between the world's longest Zoom call, a.k.a. known as School for Tap. Wiley's got mud on his hands. Tip's playing with a giant stick. And I feel really grateful for this. It's like little, small, little canyon right by our house, running through the heart of Seattle. It's been this little haven for us. And I just want to say that. Small expression of gratitude for these small moments the people we love, for all of you, and for nature. Anyway, we've got a great story today about gratitude, struggle, perseverance, all those things. Thank you all for listening. I'm Fitz Cajal. What's I'm your name? Kathleen Cajal. And what are they listening to? The Dirtbag Diaries. That's true. They're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Have a good one. My family had a long service in the military, and growing up, I'd hear stories about my grandfather, my father, and everybody else that served in the family, aunts and uncles. This is Steve Baskus. As a kid, hearing his family talk about military service inspired him to seek out his own ways to challenge himself mentally and physically. And even in just a typical park, like where there's a lot of equipment to climb on, my brothers and I, we would try to climb on the sections that no one would go to <laughs> or you can't get on. Before he was even a teenager, Steve rode his bike 17 miles to get to and from school each day in southern Illinois. 
he learned how to play drums and joined a band. When the family moved to Long Island after Steve turned 13, he got his first job bussing tables at two different restaurants. He had to apply for a worker's permit because he was so young, but he relished the responsibility. I tried to take on challenges, whatever they might be. Uh, My dad always was good at telling me it's good to have a lot of life experience and and to understand as much as you can so that you can, you know, you have these tools that will help you uh, if something were to happen. Three years after the Baskas family moved to Long Island, two planes flew into the World Trade Centers on September 11, 2001. Steve had just started high school. After that event, every day, all day long, the news was reporting for years. And um, all these soldiers uh, and Marines and airmen were dying or being wounded. And I wanted to understand why we were at war and what the war was all about. And I also wanted, I thought I could be an asset or someone that could be helpful. Over the following years, Steve maintained a steady interest in joining the military. Once he was out of high school, he decided to enlist. He began his training as an infantryman at Fort Benning, Georgia, in early 2007. I remember the first day we got to our training barracks, and you have to imagine everybody's on a bus and very nervous. Uh, we are all dressed up in our uniform, and, and we have a this massive duffel bag that's like as big as us almost. Uh, <laughs> we pull up, and there's hundreds of, of soldier recruits. And they jump on the bus and they say, get off this bus. And they're just telling us to run and form up way up uh, near the battalion building. They have us throw our, our bags down. And there's hundreds of these bags and they take us off to the side. They really wanted to just totally throw us off our bearings. And they would pick each one of us and they'd tell us, go find your bag. But, you know, everybody during the chaos threw their bags all in a line. There's hundreds of these identical green bags. And, and so they made a show of it. You know, it was basically the beginning of, um, you know, messing with your life and, and, and losing your freedom. Once everyone got their bags sorted, they settled into the barracks and began training. They would physically destroy us and, you know, and work us to the bone. Like we'd have a full day, like an 18-hour day, and it's almost midnight, and we're getting ready for bed. A drill sergeant would tell us, you know, we're, we're done finally for the evening. We've been cleaning weapons. We've been cleaning ourselves. We've been cleaning the bay. No joke with like a toothbrush, you know. And, and then, you know, we think we're going to sleep, and they'd wake us up 40 minutes later and make us do exercise, take us outside, and then we'd go back to sleep. That routine went on week after week. Steve was given a leadership position as platoon guide early on in his training, and he held on to that position for nearly the entire time he was in Fort Benning. See, I wasn't focused on all the pain and chaos. I was really interested in how can you stay focused and organized. After 18 weeks of basic and advanced training at Fort Benning, Steve got a few weeks off and then began additional training in June with his unit in Fort Hood, Texas. In Texas, Steve volunteered for the Personal Security Detachment, 
which meant he'd protect generals in Iraq from combat and danger. In November 2007, Steve was deployed as part of President Bush's Operation Iraqi Freedom. He would be serving on the Command Personal Security Detachment for the 4th Infantry Division. Each of the squads in the division had 12 or 13 soldiers, and every squad was assigned to protect a commander or general in the army as they moved between meetings on the battlefield. Steve and his squad boarded a plane bound for Kuwait, where they would continue their training in the desert for a few months before entering Iraq. Then, in early 2008, they flew to Baghdad. We we got on the ground, and it was just blazing hot. I mean, like, hot and dry like Colorado is, but stifling hot like uh, you could cook eggs, you know, easily on anything that was black or metal. Steve and his squad settled into their base outside the Baghdad International Airport. They were tasked with protecting a brigadier general, so they'd follow him around on missions every day to make sure he stayed safe. They visited reconstruction projects in and around Baghdad, like power plants, vocational schools, water treatment plants, and landfills. As they drove from site to site, Steve got a sense of the devastation five years of war had wrought on Iraq. I saw kids playing in trash and toddlers playing in mud holes and people waiting in long lines for jobs. Empty sectors of the city damaged buildings that were gashed, like with huge gashes and blown out, like you could see through the buildings. And it's like, how is that building standing? Just all kinds of carnage. Um, And then, of course, you know, every so often a soldier's death or destruction of military equipment because of a of a roadside bomb or or civilian deaths from uh, explosions in a market. On May 13, 2008, Steve and his squad set off on a mission to escort their officer to an airbase north of Baghdad called Camp Taji. They made it to the base safely, and then in the evening turned around to head back to their base in Baghdad. Steve drove the vehicle, and his fellow soldier, Victor Koda, sat in the passenger seat beside him. In the back sat their Iraqi interpreter, William Petraeus, and then another infantryman, Adam Hartley, operated the gun from the turret. Imagine, like, every day you go to work, you know your route, and if someone that did not like you had the capability of planting an explosive device anywhere along that route, would you be able to find it driving at 15, 30, or 40 miles an hour? The U.S. Army had all kinds of aircraft monitoring the routes, checking for roadside bombs. But they didn't always find everything the opposition planted. I just remember talking to Victor because we were the lead vehicle. And um, he was talking to me and he was saying something like, you know, you think uh, Sergeant Perez is feeling, you know, I don't remember, frisky or something. It was funny. Uh, he, was, he was joking with me. I was always joking. He was, he was like a dad to me. And then, the bomb detonated. Steve doesn't remember a lot of what happened next. He faintly recalls a lot of yelling and noise, people talking to him, and not knowing where he was. I had shrapnel that went through my side of my head and through both my eyes, uh, ripped through my olfactory nerve. I lost all my smell. Both my legs and arms were hit by small fragments. My right knee, my right thigh, my left thigh, 
my left arm, I almost lost it at the elbow, arterial and vascular damage. I have no feeling in my left hand. The other members of Steve's team quickly sent for a medivac. The helicopter flew Steve to a field hospital, where they performed basic procedures like pressure bandages and tourniquets. Once his condition was stabilized enough, medics put him on a flight to Germany, where doctors performed emergency surgeries on his eyes, sinuses, neck, and arms. They put 18 staples in his head and removed shrapnel from his throat, which had barely missed his carotid artery. Steve drifted in and out of consciousness. After a few days, the military flew Steve back to Walter Reed Hospital in Maryland. I had no reference of the world as my body moved from place to place, but I awoke finally at Walter Reed. I think they just let off some of the the morphine and the drugs, and I finally uh, started to retain thoughts, and I had a memory, and and I remember being very... um, on the edge of dying is what it felt like. Uh, the weakest I have ever felt. You just feel like a sliver of life. Like I felt like my body was vibrating. It was like thro- I just it was just the strangest feeling, and I felt so sick and and just weak, very very weak. Like I mean, I've never felt that weak in my life. When Steve regained consciousness at Walter Reed. He reached up and felt the patches over his eyes. No one would tell me what exactly was wrong. The first thing I heard was, you know, you suffered a serious injury and uh, your eyes were severely damaged. Soon he learned that severely damaged meant he'd never see again. Steve's family met him at Walter Reed, and his younger brother stayed by his bedside the entire time as Steve recovered from surgery. A few days after he arrived at Walter Reed, Steve's unit called him on the phone from Iraq. Steve listened from his hospital bed as they told him that Victor Coda, the soldier who was like a dad to Steve, had been killed by shrapnel in the accident. It was very difficult to hear that they had a whole nother eight, nine months to go. They had to salvage the truck and they have to wash the blood out of it and clean up the vehicle. And then they went back out on mission the next day. Steve lay half a globe away, patches on his eyes, his left arm in a cast, his right arm full of pins, and tubes coming out of his knee, arm, throat, and nose. He knew there was nothing he could do, but he felt horrible that his team had to carry on without him. He wanted to be there to help with the rest of the missions and to process the trauma of the explosion with his fellow soldiers. I was just thinking about the time spent with my buddy Victor, who died next to me, and remembering experiences of being in the chapel whenever a soldier died in Iraq. Meanwhile, the reality of his current situation started sinking in. I didn't know what I looked like. I didn't know how distorted my body and face and everything was, I was worried about being cared for or having a relationship. I thought, I can't drive. Driving was one of my favorite things to do, to escape. It was like a stress relief. Uh, I'd listen to music and, and drive somewhere. I was like, I can't drive. What am I going to, how am I going to work? 
People are always going to look at me like I'm a burden. Now even the smallest, most insignificant parts of human life, getting a glass of water, going to the bathroom, reading, became enormous challenges. Next time you're alone, close your eyes and imagine, and then be in an unfamiliar place, like a hotel room somewhere, and say, like, well, how do I do this? How do I get here? How do I accomplish something? Everything you can think about is what I had to relearn. Steve remained at Walker Reed for a month. Once he had regained enough strength, they transitioned him to the VA Blind Rehabilitation Center in Chicago. At the VA center, he learned how to use assistive technology and systems that help people with visual impairments regain their independence in society. Steve shared difficult moments of recovery and memories of war with the other veterans at the VA. Most of the vets were older than Steve and had dealt with the fallout of injury or blindness for many years. Steve and the other veterans would trade off having bad days and support each other when they needed a morale boost. We were healing together, and they would teach me a lot because I was fresh from war. You know, the nurses or doctors would say, Steve, do you mind sitting with this veteran? You know, and kind of distracted me from what I would have to, like, suffer from. So I wasn't focusing on my pain. I was, I remember I was trying to comfort someone else. Steve's life as an independent, driven leader faded replaced with a disorienting void of sounds and sensations. He depended on others for help to do essentially everything. At times, he'd get lost in hopelessness, in the grief that swept over him for the independence he'd lost, and in the grief for his friend, Victor. But as the days passed, he began to heal with the support of the other veterans and nurses at the VA. And he remembered a promise he'd made before he joined the army. Find out what that promise was after a break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus the rack has an all metal construction, genuine Kashima coat and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. 
I made the decision when I joined the military that I was joining something that would take me to a hostile place, a place I thought I understood, but I knew I didn't deep down. And where humans hunt humans, you know, where people are trying to kill you. And my dad made me promise him, he said, no matter what, Steve, if you come back a different person, or if you come back home, never give up and try to have a good attitude. And I promised him that. And I like to hold true to my promises. Steve started researching blind athletes. He read Eric Weinmeier's book, Touch the Top of the World, a blind man's memoir about summiting the seven tallest mountains on each continent. Inspired and ravenous for more, Steve tore through accounts of other blind athletes and their successes, and researched the techniques and systems that help people without vision rock climb, run, mountaineer, and whitewater kayak. I was scheming up ideas of like, you know, I can just do activity. I can just keep moving and that's going to help me heal. I started researching different things that I could do and I was writing people and just trying to tell them, you know, what's happened to me and what I want to do. And people were really excited to want to help because I was very motivated to get off my, my ass. And I wanted to become strong again, both mentally and physically. From the rehab center, Steve reached out to Eric Weinmeier and told him about his injury and his interest in climbing mountains. Eric invited Steve on a trip with a bunch of other blind individuals to climb Mount East to see Waddle in Mexico, which tops out at 17,159 feet. At the time, it seemed like an impossible goal. The idea of climbing a giant mountain without sight felt daunting. But instead of turning Steve around, that fear motivated him. I'm stubborn. Like, my mind tells me not to do something. Either I'm afraid, nervous, scared, or I don't want to do it. Just those simple things. I tend to tell myself to do it. Fully taken by the prospect of adventure, Steve pushed to leave the VA early so that he could begin training for his trip to Mexico. Although parts of his body were still healing, the VA discharged him in January 2009, and Steve found his own apartment in Chicago. He bought a treadmill, got into tandem cycling, and casually signed up for a few races in the fall. I ran a little more than half the Chicago Marathon. I, f I did not finish because of an injury, and I completed the half Augusta half Ironman, all within three months of each other. Wait, I'm sorry, Steve. We're, I'm sorry. We're going to have to back up for a second. You, you raced a marathon and a half Ironman a few months after you got out of rehab? Who are you? Well, uh, <laughs> well, so I didn't train like extremely well for, for it all, but I tried my best. Tried his best. What he didn't say is that in both the marathon and the half Ironman, Steve pushed himself through significant amounts of pain to keep going. He ran with a sighted guide, holding onto an elbow, so he was only able to swing one arm as he raced. But even with the pain and the inefficiencies, it felt rewarding to be out, to be moving, challenging himself again. You know, in my mind at the time, I was doing it for Victor. I was like, I'm alive, man. I'm alive. I'm going <laughs> to live life to my fullest. Though they felt rugged in the moment, the races gave him confidence that after a few more months of training, he could climb a mountain.
In early November 2009, 11 months after he left the rehab center, Steve boarded a flight to Mexico en route to climb Mount Eustace Waddle with Eric Weinmere and a team of other blind individuals. After a few days of organizing supplies, acclimating, and getting to know each other, the team began their journey up the mountain. Each blind member of the team had a sighted guide. The expedition would take three days, and they'd camp at higher elevations each night on the way to the summit. Eustace Waddle is an exposed, rocky volcano outside of Amecameca, not far from Mexico City. Though the climb isn't too technical, just some minor scrambling at the top, it's high, cold, and exposed. Steve had never climbed a mountain that tall. I remember hurting and struggling with the thought of I'm not agile. My whole life as a kid, I was very agile and athletic. I didn't run into things, you know, and, <laughs> and I didn't act clumsy. That's what I felt on that climb, and I just felt horrible pain. I was still healing from surgeries and from um, my arm. My left arm still hurts me really bad. But on the third day of hiking, now over frozen scree, Steve knew he was closing in on his goal. There was a team that was ahead of us, and they were already on the summit, and we had a radio, and we could hear the radio squawk, and I could hear them hooting and, and cheering, and, and we weren't far. You know the wild thing about that climb? And I had no clue. It was November 11th, and so I remember as we were approaching the summit, people were, like, thanking me, and I was like, why are they th- what are you thanking me for? And then I realized they would, a couple of them finally said, like, we thank you for your service, Steve. Steve summited the eighth tallest mountain in North America on Veterans Day, 2009. Because people on his team knew he'd served in Iraq, they made sure to spread the word and give thanks. It reminded Steve how far he'd come since the day the bomb exploded a year and a half before. As he stood on the top of the volcano, above the clouds, Steve soaked in the sounds and sensations of the mountain and began imagining the scene around him. He knew he stood on scree, so he visualized the reds and yellows and tans of the rocks. He figured it must be sparsely vegetated and arid. Based on what his friends had told him on the climb up, they faced another active volcano that stood smoking in the distance. He visualized the smoke rising into the horizon. He knew they'd hiked above the clouds, and he saw, in his mind's eye, a nebulous ring below where they stood. I'm very lucky to have seen the world for 22 years of my life. And I have like, it's an old-fashioned way of saying it, I have this memory card or Rolodex, you know, in my mind, where I can pull it out of this deep, dark crevice in my mind. I kind of place a picture of something that I once knew over the experience I'm having in the moment. Whether it's correct or incorrect is a different story. It doesn't matter. No one's there to tell me I'm wrong. I can imagine whatever I want. A few months earlier, it was hard for Steve to imagine himself making it to the top of a mountain with no vision. I took on these challenges of doing things that even I thought were impossible because I knew that I would figure out things. 
you only learn from challenges. I mean, from hard things. I mean, that's, you learn from your mistakes. Climbing the mountain and working with my team, it taught me that nothing's impossible, really. In the 12 years following that first climb, Steve picked up about every other outdoor adventure sport. He's raced tandem cycling in the U.S. Paralympics and medaled at a national level. He learned how to whitewater kayak and paddled the 226-mile journey down the Grand Canyon. He skydived, alpine and Nordic skied, rock climbed, sailed, and climbed major mountains on all of the continents besides Antarctica. Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua, and Elbrus are a few. For Steve, continuing to challenge himself in the outdoors is about more than reestablishing a new normal or regaining the strength he had before he was injured. It's about understanding himself and the world in a way he never had before. I never skied. I never cycled. I never climbed mountains. I never kayaked. I never did any of this as a sighted person. I hiked and I did like small climbs, like, you know, climbing trees. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, everything that I've accomplished, you know, that people see is all things I've learned as a blind person. So I'm seeing the world, you could say, in a different perspective. I'm feeling the world. And it's, it's refreshing. It's like if I don't focus so much on the negative and, you know, the horrible thing of losing something, you know, traumatically losing your ability to see, I can focus on new things, new adventures, and, and, and learn something else. Now Steve lives in Montrose, Colorado, and gets out on adventures whenever he can. Although learning how to navigate everyday life continues to be a challenge for Steve, he tries not to dwell on the hundreds of reminders he gets each day that life would be easier with eyes. He commits to staying focused on the ways he can still learn, enjoy life, and help other people enjoy it too. He's picked up drumming again with some assistive technology and is studying to become an audio engineer. He recently started his own podcast called Baskus 360 to share stories of strength, resilience, and courage. And a few years ago, Steve began a nonprofit called the Blind Endeavors Foundation. It helps people with physical and emotional challenges get outside and adventure. For Steve, the outdoors helped him heal, and he wants to help other people heal too. I would tell others to never stop adventuring and exploring. If you lose your sight or you go through some sort of traumatic experience, it's important to, to never give up. No matter how hard it gets, just keep trying. Try, try, try. And eventually it will happen and you'll forget about how many times you tried <laughs> because you've accomplished what you set out to do. Thank you, Steve, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Kai Engel, Ken Christensen, Sergey Cheremazov, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nizkoto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zards and edited by Ashley Langholtz and Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Cahal and graphics by Anya Miller. 
I'm Fitz Cajal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Just kidding. The Cajals are on vacation. Happy fall, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.